You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Conjuring. The devil made me do it. Hey! You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. This is Ed Warren, here with Lorraine. All right, let's get started. Residents of Brookfield were shocked this afternoon by the broad daylight murder of Bruno Sauls. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. Whatever is going on, whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. It's a witch's totem. We think your family was cursed. And that connection's still broken. I'm only interested in reality. But I can see things that your people can't. Something terrible happened here. A master Satanist is not an adversary to be taken lightly. She's doing it again. She's reaching out to the darkness. Lorraine, you need to come back. Saving him worth everything you have. Because that's what it may very well cost. everybody you were just listening to the trailer for the conjuring the devil made me do it and the story is as follows paranormal investigators ed and lorraine warren take on one of the most sensational cases of their careers after a cop stumbles upon a dazed and bloodied young man walking down the road accused of murder the suspect claims demonic possession as his defense forcing the warrens into a supernatural inquiry unlike anything they've ever seen before the film starring vera farmiga patrick wilson Rory O'Connor, Sarah Catherine Hook, and Julian Hillard. It is directed by Michael Chaves, and it is written by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Emma Sasek. Hello, everyone. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Sarah Clements. Hi, everyone. And Cody Derricks. Hiya. All right, the devil made me do this podcast, so damn it, we are doing it. (laughs) Here we go. This is the first time we're ever talking about the Conjuring series here on the podcast. So that's kind of exciting. Hmm. Uh, the original Conjuring film came out in 2013. It's a movie that I've already revisited for our ongoing 2013 retrospective. I saw The Conjuring 2 when it released a few years later in theaters. And now I'm getting the chance to watch this one on HBO Max from home. Funny how times change. In between all of these entries, there have been spinoffs, 
all these other types of movies all taking place within the Conjuring universe. But for all intents and purposes, this is the third entry in the story that most people care about when it comes to this franchise, and that is the story of the Warrens. A very, very controversial duo, if you ask me, in many, many ways. And like I said, uh, I'm sure we're going to touch upon aspects of The Conjuring 1 and 2 as well, since we've never had a chance to talk about those here uh, before. And this movie here is the first to not be directed by franchise Helmer James Wan. So there's a lot of interesting elements at play here. Maybe some demonic elements at play here. Over the soul of this review, ba ba boom. Oh goodness! I can't. I can't oh, really wow. manufacture a jump scare, so I'm sorry. Oh, like in the movie The Conjuring, the devil made me do it. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, now I get it. Thank yes, you. yes. So here to start us off, I'm going to go over to Josh Parham. Josh, what has your experience with the franchise been like leading up to this, and what did you think of The Conjuring? The devil made me do it. So I did like the first Conjuring movie. I wasn't quite with the like very energetic praise of that film, but I thought it was good. It was entertaining and it was an enjoyable movie. And I kind of feel like everything else that has spun out from that has been pretty inferior. Um, I think Conjuring 2 was like decent. It was way too long. It's very overstuffed, but it had some moments in it. And I think like nearly everything related to the spinoffs has been just utter garbage. Like I didn't, I didn't even finish like the nun and didn't like, I think those movies are just really, really bad. But the main Conjuring films, they're good, but I've already been sort of witnessing a series of diminishing returns just from the first to the second. And I'm sorry to say that it continues from the second to the third one. I think this movie, first of all, is not scary. And I know that's always going to be subjective, but I really think that the kind of construction of all the scary scenes in this movie feel pretty lazy to me, and they weren't very effective. And it's kind of silly in a lot of places, which if it had steered into that tone, I would have maybe been more on board. But it feels like a very mismatch of styles that is not very consistent. And I grew tired of it pretty quickly. And I think that Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are good in these roles. I do think that they center the movie kind of they do center it well, even though it's weird that they are sort of being centered more and more in these films. They kind of forget about the actual cases, I feel like. But, um, yeah, this movie's not all that great. It's not terrible, but I really wasn't all that interested in it. Okay. All right. Sarah Clements, do you agree? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, as Josh was talking, I was like, oh, I feel the opposite about this point. So, But um, I'll be in the my own minority on this because, yeah, I did enjoy it surprisingly um it's not the best of the three especially in terms of scares like josh said um like i thought it was odd that they never show the demon they're fighting but um how could you even be scarier than the nun because she was scary as shit so it's hard (laughs) to top that anyway but um um but the warrens do get themselves in some like frightening situations especially lorraine um who takes charge of the action in this one a lot which i loved but um, but the the film still manages to make you feel scared for everyone involved, in my opinion. But um, like I saw a lot of people saying about the, how they wanted to go back to sort of haunted house movies. But at the end of the day, I feel like these films are about more so about haunt, haunted people. And it doesn't really matter where the story takes place. So I thought it was refreshing that it went to a different direction to make it make it more like a detective 
detective story. Um, I mean, I was never not intrigued by what was going on. And I really liked how in this one they concentrated on Ed and Lorraine's relationship more. And we got to learn more about them as characters. But I feel like I love them so much that at the end of the day, I'm pretty I'm pretty easy to please. So, <laughs> All right. Okay. And Cody Derricks. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, I'm a fan of this franchise. Uh, the, the the first one really kind of revitalized uh, what I kind of look at as like the artfully minded horror resurgence that we're going through. I think it really was one of the kind of starting gun moments of, oh, we can use uh, filmmaking that's well done and evocative to evoke scares rather than just relying on uh, simple, you know, jump scares and such. Not that I don't love a good jump scare, but I digress. This movie I really didn't find to be a worthy follow-up, and I'm, I'm probably going to do a lot of comparative criticism, which is not my favorite type of critiquing, but I think it's kind of impossible to escape with this type of movie that's so, you know, serialized and related to the first two. I, I'm sorry to kind of <laughs> say the opposite of what you just said, Sarah, but I do kind of miss the stuck-in-one-location idea of the first two. I think that was a really grounding way to kind of tie in the supernatural with something that we can relate to and recognize, and not just in terms of on a human level, but when you're in the same location for long enough, you really come to know it like it's almost your own home. And I think having that be the starting point for a movie and have it be stuck there really allows for a lot of good scares because it kind of allows for a lot of turning things on its head and uh, subversion of expectations. I also miss that this movie, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but it doesn't have kind of a defining spooky <laughs> bad thing. I don't know how to put it into words better than that. But you know, the first movie has Annabelle, who's iconic, and a queen. And the second movie has the nun and the crooked man. And this one has a lady in a black dress. I don't know. It didn't really scare me at all. There's one really great sequence. It's very brief, but it kind of made me, you know, perk up my ears a little bit. But overall, I really just kind of miss James Wan. All righty. And now we come to Emma Sasek. I get to echo a lot of people's sentiments now. Um, I agree with you guys in terms of how I felt with the first two movies. When I watched the first one uh, several years ago, um, at that point, I was doing like a deep dive into horror and really just trying to watch as many horror movies as possible. And I distinctly remember that The Conjuring and that clapping scene in particular made me want to shit myself right then and there. It was too much to handle for me. Um, I rewatched the second one earlier this week to get ready for this one. And that one, too. I mean, once you have Miss Valak in anything, you are like, I cannot handle that either. So the first two were definitely, you know, heavy contenders and tough ones to ever quote unquote beat. Um, I still think that the first one is the superior one out of this trio. Um, but going into watching this movie, I, I really had some high hopes. I was intrigued by the fact that it would be a bit of a different tone with this movie, just because it would be outside of the typical haunted house setting that we've been used to. And I mean, a lot like what Josh and Cody had just said, I just I felt like it was lacking a bit. Um I really did not feel scared at any point. And I know, again, that's that's very subjective, but I, I don't know. I just, I was not invested in this story and 
into this demonic possession as I know I could have been if it had been handled in a much different way or if there was just a little bit more given to me. Um, I like that we are usually able to see what is causing all of this trouble and nonsense and fear among people. But yeah, I was just a little underwhelmed with this woman in the black dress and this weird little figure thing that she was using to control and ruin people's lives. Um, and I did, I did like that we kind of got a little bit of more development between Ed and Lorraine's relationship in this one. It was cute to kind of see some of their past selves and all of that. But just overall, it was just lacking something. And maybe it was James Wan at the helm of things, or maybe it was just a little bit more of a developed script. I'm not sure. So I think that the first Conjuring movie is one of the best horror movies um, I've ever seen, actually. And a large reason for that is, yes, James Wan, but also mostly because at the time while watching it, I didn't really know much about Ed and Lorraine Warren. And so that movie felt very real in a lot of ways, and it shocked me so. Now, <laughs> upon further investigation, if you look deep enough, you will come to realize that the Warrens are full of shit, and they have exploited a lot, if not all, no, I'll just say all, of these cases for their own financial gain and infamy. And... I'm sure that people have opinions on that. That's all well and good. That's just my own opinions. But it makes for some pretty great books, some pretty great movies, and so on and so forth. So here we are. And so heading into this one, I liked the first two. I thought the second one was just a slight step down from the first, but I still liked it overall. This one... Yeah, I, I do think that the James Wan not being here is probably the biggest reason why this movie fails, because this one, compared to the other two, as someone mentioned earlier, um, is more open, where the first two were more self-contained to a single location, and this one definitely introduces those detective elements, as mentioned before. There's also a really, really strong moral um dilemma at the center of this movie that I feel like the movie does not dig deep enough into at all really because it plays it for real aka um, that this guy claims that the devil made him uh, kill his landlord stabbing him what was it like 20 something times or whatever and we all know that that's not true in reality it's horseshit and so I felt like there was a really, really interesting angle to explore with that potentially. But nope, these movies are playing it completely straight. The devil really is involved here or whatever it is, a witch or I don't know. And so as a result, uh, we have the movie that we have. And to me, it just felt like every other generic Hollywood horror film that is out there. The scares weren't really that scary, in my opinion. Um, it's beautifully shot at times. Um, I, I definitely thought there were some very interesting camera techniques at play here, but overall, it was missing that grounded realism that made you, even for a split second, forget that this is all made up and that maybe, potentially maybe, these cases that the Warrens are working on could actually be real. 
this one just kind of threw all of that out the window, in my opinion. See, I actually don't mind the way that these movies play everything very straight. Um, this is this is not going to make any sense for a second, but go with me. So yesterday, my boyfriend and I, before we watched Conjuring 3, were watching the John Singleton 2000 Shaft uh, sequel. Yeah. And we were watching it and we were like, why? This is so exciting. Why did they? I mean, I haven't seen this movie, but why did they go in the direction they did with the 2019 version, which is like kind of a satirical buddy cop thing? And we came to the conclusion that it's because the marvelization of films has kind of made everything forced to be very knowing. You know, I think it's that and a combination of the Internet, you know, CinemaSins kind of thinking, making things very uh, the audience very aware of what's going on. And if you if you don't acknowledge that your movie is seen as like cheesy. And I think the Mm -hmm. one genre that's mostly been able to escape that is horror for the most part, you know, and maybe that's because you have to play everything seriously for it to be scary. And so I actually don't mind that this movie sticks to that. I think it would have I actually maybe would have minded a little bit more or would have appreciated a bit more of a kind of skeptic uh, mindset in the movie, which I think the second one does pretty well. There's one character in that that is uh, really hesitant to kind of yes. believe mm-hmm. everything the Warrens are going for. And actually what happens because of that is that when she starts to believe things, it makes things scarier because if you're like, oh my God, she believes it, it must be you know terrifying. And this movie kind of really, in the way it centers itself on the Warrens, I think is both a blessing and a curse uh, because it doesn't allow for any sort of uh, wiggle room in terms of what the movie is showing. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying in regards to that. I, I think at the end of the day, though, with this one in particular, like I was trying to figure out like, OK, why is this not working? Because for me, I was trying to compare it to the first two, which I like. And I think all of us, on for the most part, think are good, you know, if not better than that. So there seems to be an agreement amongst many that this is the weakest of the three. So then the question is why? And I think another reason why that is, is because Yes, the Conjuring movies have always had good jump scare moments, but I also feel like they were, I mentioned earlier that they were grounded in some sense of realism where it made you possibly forget uh, that these movies are, you know, fabricated, uh, you know, for obviously the horror genre. But the other main reason why I felt like this movie did not achieve the heights uh, that the first two did was because it did go more fully into um, the bombastic horror, contorted bodies, streams of blood, jump scares, instead of actually going for some blood-curdling dread and fear and anticipation of those moments. Yeah, I will say that anytime I've seen the first two movies, you know, like in the second one, for example, there's that shot of the little girl trying to figure out what the heck is going on with the TV. And then you just like see the old man behind her and like you immediately get like that rush going through your body. Just the first two movies after I would watch them, I would immediately get that feeling that maybe I should be more aware of like what's going on around me. Maybe I should check my, <laughs> check behind me a little bit more. You know, you just kind of get the sense like maybe the stuff really, maybe they're onto something. <laughs> maybe these ghosts are really behind me. I just didn't feel any of that with this movie. And, you know, sure, there. I, honestly, I was watching behind people's shoulders the entire time, just waiting to see if, like, anybody pops out or just if any figure shows up in any way. And I'm not saying you have to have that in order to have a great horror movie, anything like that, not even close to that. 
but it was just missing some of those elements that I have come to really appreciate and that have been done really well in these movies. And you're, yeah, you were just kind of left with lots of violence, lots of blood, lots of back breaking, cracking, popping sounds and moments. And a lot of them were definitely creepy and Oh, I never want to see that again. But it just didn't leave me with that same feeling that the first two so masterfully did. And I think an issue that I run into with that is, like, yes, there are some moments that are at least, like, well-constructed and well-shot. But I feel like the focus of this story just really isn't on the main case. And I think that's the strength of the first two movies is that, Yes, you do get a sense of who the Warrens are and what their role in the story is, but your main emotional connection is to the people that are being directly affected. And I've always thought that's actually been the strength of those first two movies is that we do care about these families. And I don't get anything from the character of Arnie. He is used as a catalyst and then kind of forgotten about. And they use him like every once in a while when the movie has to remember that this isn't actually supposed to be about the Warrens, but... I don't really feel anything for Arnie and and nothing that he goes through is ever really that emotionally impactful for me. Maybe it's because they were trying to not repeat themselves necessarily, but I actually thought that the opening uh, sequence, which I think is actually one of the best scenes in the franchise of the exorcism of the eight year old. uh, uh, What's his name? David. There was a part of me that thought that and tell me if you guys think I'm wrong in saying this, but I feel like this film this third film has the most story to tell. Like it feels more expansive than the other two films were. And I felt like there was a lot of stuff with, uh, with Arnie, as you said before, uh, Josh, that like it could have just been completely cut down. And maybe the first half of this film could have been about the exorcism of his brother. And the second half could have been about him. But instead, they're they're dragging this out and they're adding more elements which you know are going to be uh expanded upon in other sequels so there's like some more setup going on here and more world expansion and i i just kind of felt like at a certain point well before the halfway point of this movie where i kind of lost interest because the story just wasn't as gripping to me and i and i realized the same as you did the reason why it wasn't gripping was because i was lacking that emotional connection to anyone outside of the warrens do you guys think that like a lot of the issue has to do with the case itself like it's the most high profile one but and yet the warrens and arnie are like so separated because he's in prison but in the other ones they were all together and, you know, they were with the victims, you could say, and they were helping them like, you know, face to face at all times. Do you think it just a lot of the issues just has to do with the case itself? And should they have like just skipped over it entirely? Hmm. Yeah, I did notice that, you know, Arnie was just in prison the entire time. And I don't, I think that they came to visit him maybe like once, or we see at least one scene of them coming to speak with him. Um, And other than that, it's like, okay, we're going on our little adventure to try to figure stuff out. And I just felt, yes, to your point, Sarah, yes, it, it did kind of affect it in that way. And that's maybe why I felt a little disconnected from it all. It also just seemed like there wasn't enough I just didn't feel like there was enough shown about like this trial and them. 
I don't know, finding that I would have liked to have seen a little bit more from this trial. Like what evidence are you putting forward? What is the jury deliberating on? Like none of those elements were covered and maybe you don't need it in a movie like this, but I would have liked to have seen just a little bit of what this lawyer has to put forward. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Well, like I was saying before, you could do that if you structure your film where the second half of your film is about this brother who made the sacrifice for his younger his younger brother and is now having to face the consequences of doing that and there is this trial element that could have introduced these very very strong questions over um how you know crazy and ridiculous that kind of defense is and how the warrens are fully you know believing in it and so on and so forth and it just could have gotten the audience to i think look at this case in a very interesting light but the movie you're right is really not that concerned with those kinds of questions as cody said it plays it all very very straight and leaves no room for ambiguity i do kind of find it funny though that spoiler alert he does still get convicted of manslaughter for like 15 20 years or whatever and you know still goes to prison in the end uh basically the court's claiming that no you, you cannot n- n- no <laughs> no <laughs> they were like their deliberation was like two and a half minutes and they were like, all right, let's make them sweat for like five more minutes. I, I love when they say like in the courtroom, uh, he's not guilty by reason of demonic possession. And then there's just silence from everyone. The judge is just like, excuse me. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't you can't plead that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And then they like actually go 
out of the court and then say like, okay, well now we got to round up evidence when like, no, that defense was never used. <laughs> they mentioned <laughs> it and the judge said, no, we're not doing that. And quickly it was dropped. But there is this one great line of dialogue that I really did like. It was used in the trailer and it's like where um, Patrick Wilson uh, says, you know, the court believes in God's presence, you know, like in the courtroom. It's maybe it's time they start believing that the devil can be involved as well. And it's like, all right, that's a good hook. I'll give you guys that. Yeah, that's one of those lines that you're like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. It. Hold on a second. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a letdown in that regard, because I'll tell you, stuff from the second half of this movie, it's already left my mind. And I kid you not, I just watched it last night and I barely remember any of it. I remember it after I got past like the f- hour point, I was like, there's still 50 minutes left. And I was like, oh, wait, you've seen nothing yet of this movie. But I was just totally out of it. And I was really sad about that because I do really like these movies. I mean, John Noble showed up. I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that made you very happy, Matt. (laughs) I always like seeing my Lord of the Rings alumni pop up in anything. It's yeah, true. <laughs> he's also like so wasted in this role too. He could do it in his sleep, and you know, I, I I didn't really care for that character. Didn't really care about anything related to the actual like possession. Which even the initial setup of the possession didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Like, why did the demon transfer to Arnie in the first place? Like, he he shouted at it, Josh, and said, "Come into me, take yeah, me." And yeah. that's apparently enough, as illustrated by you know The Exorcist when that happened well, it, in that film. Yes, it is lore in movies that when you shout at a possessed person to take me, that the demon will always take the other person, regardless of what the motivation is. It's true. They're very polite. They're going to listen to requests. <laughs> They're like, well, yes. all right. Since you They're like a DJ nicely. just taking requests. Play this. <laughs> take me next. <laughs> so, yeah, like that initial setup already didn't really invest me a whole lot. And as the movie went on, it just felt like it didn't even know what tone it really wanted to strike. Because there's moments in this film that I found to be, like, very silly. Like, <laughs> there's a reanimated corpse in this movie. And, like, when that <laughs> happened, I was thinking, like, wait, this seems very odd and doesn't really fit in with the tone that's already been established with this series. But if it had skidded more into that, I might have been on board with it a bit more. Because I sort of like it when horror movies can get a little bit more on the comedic side, but it felt like this film was stuck between wanting to go to those places, but still wanting to take itself relatively seriously. And I never felt like it balanced those two opposing tones well at all. My favorite moment from what we saw here was when they're like, well, where do we start? Why don't we go to the beginning and the waterbed scene? I mean, Oh, that was good. That was like, the one of the only parts that I genuinely enjoyed and was intrigued by, but it was so short lived. And I just wish that they gave us more of that. And honestly, after watching the movie, I still don't know why this family (laughs) was possessed. I really just wish that the movie held back in general. I really felt like they, like this movie could have been so much more effective if they did not have so many sequences and so many jump scares sprinkled throughout. I think this one of the strengths of uh, the first two films is that there are long stretches of character development and dialogue where there aren't really that many scares going on, but there is always this foreboding 
um, you know, black cloud that's hanging over everything where you know it's leading up to something. And, you know, when you focus your story on character to that extent, you just get so much more out of it emotionally. And while the Warrens are already well established, everything else with Arnie and these other characters here, like as Josh said, are just completely wasted where no one in the cast makes any kind of a notable impression. I will say, I feel like a lot of us... Um did say some variation of where's James Wan? We missed that touch. Mm-hmm. I think the director did make some choices here and there that I actually do want to highlight and applaud because he didn't just show up and, you know, do nothing. Oh, no, there's some creative elements yeah. at play here. Yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the lighting throughout is pretty well done. Uh, maybe that's more on the DP, but... Actually, I was going to say, is this the best-looking Conjuring film? Uh, I think the uh, second one is the best. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but this one does... This one looks different, which is interesting. It's not trying to do kind of a time period pastiche like the first two are, which are definitely trying to be very 70s. Not in terms of look necessarily, but in terms of filmmaking and long takes, etc. But this one, like I said, the lighting I think is pretty great. There's one scene towards the end that's lit almost exclusively by flashlight, which is really cool looking. And there's also one sequence uh, at the end, which I don't want to spoil too much, but it has to do with uh, doubling. And I thought that was that's the the moment I mentioned before that I found really effective. That was the one moment I thought kind of lived up to the practical based, uh, you know, psychological scares of the first two. And I yeah, so I, I have to give the too. yeah, I have to give the director some credit there. I completely agree with you on that one, Cody. In my notes, I wrote, ooh, Annihilation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then that scene, the one thing that really made me roll my eyes in in this film is when Lorraine's running and then she, like, falls. And I'm like, girl, why can't women run? Like, we can run. Like, she could (laughs) have done this. but Or or when Ed was like, Lorraine, you can't go in there. You'll get your dress dirty. (laughs) It's like, oh, come on. I really appreciate these movies do not try to take the Warrens and turn them into superheroes. Mm, they don't. Uh, I think I'd actually push against that, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I, know what, I know what you mean, but I do think there is a level of like, well, like putting them on a pedestal in a way, which you have to do to a degree to make them interesting film characters. But it, you know, it especially is funny when they show up at the end of every movie in the real footage. And you're like, oh, that's just a normal married couple. <laughs> but the hard thing about doing that, though, is that we, the audience, know that because they're based on real people, um, every single scene where they're in danger, we know that they're going to make it out alive. Sure. So it kind of robs like every scene that they're in of those kinds of stakes. Uh, the things that we don't know are with the other characters and as mentioned earlier if you're not doing a good job of properly setting up those characters to the point that we care about them then you're robbing the movie of any of its emotional stakes at that point i i don't necessarily think the threat of death is the only thing that creates tension in films i i think there's ways to kind of know that a character is going to make it out okay and still be worried about how that's going to happen or how it's going to affect them so i understand what you're saying but i i i don't think it being a true story necessarily or involving real couple that we know you know didn't die until much, much later makes it not stressful at times. I think it's interesting how this film and the second one all kind of revolve around the idea of, you know, something happening to Ed with the second one. Lorraine had that vision where she constantly believed that he was going to die in the mm-hmm. house. I hope I'm not spoiling anything. It's been no, 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 several yeah. years. <laughs> it's been several years, people. Um, And then this movie also kind of had those elements within like the first 10, 15 minutes of it. We saw 
I won't spoil this, but we just saw something happen to him that obviously affects him uh, throughout the rest of the film. So they kind of throw in those elements. But again, it still doesn't do anything where you really think that they're going to be in harm's way at any point, like severe harm's way. Although Lorraine definitely does kind of get herself in some trouble in this film, which was actually nice to see her kind of take charge. I know the other movies were either... You know, she would just have some moments um, with her, you know, powers that she has. Um, but Ed would mainly be the one leading the leading the charge. This one, it was definitely more of a Lorraine-oriented film. Yeah, I agree. And as I was saying before, um, when I was first talking about my thoughts, I thought, like, you know, this what ha- what what happens to the rain, in my opinion, um, is also quite frightening. Um, yes. <laughs> so like it was scary in that way because especially if you care so much about these characters so yeah i don't really understand the whole superhero argument so i'm with matt on that but because i think these characters are incredibly um you know human so all right so well for final thoughts on the conjuring the devil made me do it so passing it over first then to josh parham josh what other notes do you have for the conjuring the devil made me do it well, you know, I, I still really don't like the movie all that much, but I will at least end on a positive. And I will just reiterate that I do think Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are giving good performances in this movie, particularly Vera Farmiga. I, I, I do agree that she's like she has such a really great screen presence that really makes you feel empathetic for like every character that she plays. And I think that what she's given in this film really I I really found myself kind of being invested in mostly of, of what she was doing. So even though I think the story around her and how it utilizes her character, I have big issues with. And I also have just separate issues with the Warrens, like you said, Matt, which I try to, to separate as much as I can. But when they're so focused and centered in this movie, that's a problem for me. But I, f- I think Vera Farmiga is good in the movie, despite the rest of the elements not really working so well. And that's when it really is just kind of bad for me all right no i totally understand it emma what about you um something that we didn't get to talk about um those scenes where we get to see lorraine using her clairvoyant powers um particularly that moment in the forest yes i thought that that was really good like i was Mm -hmm. that was another part that i was really invested in because We've seen some of that in the other films for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like that part of it where they were really trying to connect this case, Arnie's case, to another case where somebody said, yeah, I didn't do this. It was the, the devil, the demon possessing me to do this. Um you know, it was just very spooky and mysterious and obviously a forest setting uh, lends itself to all of that. And then when, you know, she gets out of the forest and Ed is running after her, chasing after her, telling her, snap out of it, snap out of it. I was just I was really, really all for that. And, you know, we had that other scene in the um, morgue or funeral home. I, I forget which which setting that was in. You know, we had some of those elements in there, too. So I, I really liked that they took advantage of that clairvoyant powers that Lorraine has and um, upped up the ante with that. Um, you know, overall, I, I think that there are some good elements in this in this film. I mean, those two that I just mentioned and a few others. But yeah, you know, it's it's a different tone, which isn't always bad. 
I said, I felt like it was pretty refreshing that we kind of got out of that haunted house being stuck in one location. But obviously you do lose some of the creepiness and spookiness that we've come uh, to be used to, that we've gotten used to with the first two films. Um, and I just felt like this one just needed a, some more connection to really make it much more of an interesting story. Um, but, you know, I guess not everything can be a true hit in the Conjuring, Conjuring universe. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on um, Lorraine's uh, clairvoyant powers. That was one of the scenes I did like in this as well. Cody, what about you? So just a few things I haven't or we haven't touched upon. I do. I, I love the sort of trademark opening scroll, which they do in every one of these movies. I can re- distinctly remember watching the first one. And when that happened, kind of thinking, oh, I see what we're doing. OK, I like what I'm seeing. Has anybody ever done like um, that scroll but like with the Star Wars like theme music and then done like... I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm wondering if anyone's ever done that on YouTube before or something. <laughs> well, they could start with the Dead Speak. It would make sense for uh, this and Res of a... Whatever, anyway. Th- that music that uh, plays over the opening, like uh, the opening logos and stuff, man, that, that music was hitting hard coming out of the gate. Yeah, my subwoofer was bumping, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the opening scroll. I think it's a really effective way to kind of ground your movie in a place and time while also kind of tipping a hat to anybody that might, you know, know a lot of those uh, omini type movies from that time period. I do think it's funny that every single one of the opening scrolls includes um, some sort of variation on, and this was their scariest case ever, or this is the one that they don't <laughs> talk about. And it's like, how many damn cases can they have that they can't talk about? Like, we're watching movies about it. They clearly we keep do. seeing the movies on them. Yeah. <laughs> I did kind of roll my eyes at that a little bit, because to me, it's like when I read that line, the most sinister discovery of their careers, I'm like, all right, so that does that like invalidate like one and two now? Right. Like, like if I'm the nun, I'd be like, "Fuck me," I guess. Yeah. Like <laughs> Annabelle, um, it's like, yeah, bitch. Excuse me. <laughs> Have you seen me? I'm in a glass case. Annabelle fell dead in a ditch. Exactly. <laughs> um, also, I, speaking of Annabelle, I hate that she only got one little brief moment in the background out of focus. It's you know disrespectful, I'd say, but whatever. Uh, I I also um. We keep talking. A lot of people have mentioned already how good Vera is in this, and how we like that uh, the movie's kind of focused mostly around her. And I do agree. I think this is her strongest performance of the three, of, and she always gives a good performance in them. I do think it was kind of odd that in more, more in this movie than the others, uh, Ed is really kind of doubtful. I don't know if that's the right descriptor but he's very hesitant of Lorraine's powers he's doing a lot of all right come on honey enough and all right stop it no she's not going to do that in a way that kind of makes I I know why they did that because then it makes her reveal that she's actually doing something clairvoyant or supernatural even more uh, exciting because even he doesn't know what's going to happen but it does kind of not necessarily retcon but it kind of doesn't really fit with the character who's otherwise been very much, you know, on board with her abilities. Um, I just thought that was kind of a strange choice for the third movie in this franchise to be making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sarah. I mean, Cody and Emma touched on a lot, but I um, was going to point out like clairvoyance, for example, but I also like that um, they didn't just have her seeing things. Like she was acting shit out. Like there's this one part you know, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but 
it was really intense. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, she's really, like, feeling what these characters are going through. And Ed's kind of just freaking out. And I think they really um, just made it really suspenseful, you know. And a re- um, and I think it really worked for that. But also, like, shout out to Lorraine for still killing the fashion game. <laughs> Like, I don't even know if I was her, like, I just would not have the energy to ever get dressed. Like, it's just, there's too much shit going on in their lives. But <laughs> yes, yeah, costume design is always on point for her anyway. But. Nice. All right. Uh, my only points that I have here, um, the opening scene, um, I really, really enjoyed the uh, Pi May five point palm exploding heart technique that was done on Ed. Uh, <laughs> it's not really bad, but I mean, it's also, I, I think a nice nod because if I remember correctly, didn't Ed Warren die of heart failure? Yes, he did. So that moment, actually knowing that I kind of was like, Hmm, I don't know about this. I, I, I kind of liked <laughs> it, was it. A little bit almost exploity, but I mean, I'm not judging the movie on that. Well, I'm not going to shed a tear over their exploitation. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Uh, and the other uh, moment that we didn't uh, mention, but it's a tiny little thing, and it just like made me go, ah, was uh, at the end uh, when Ed is carrying around the sledgehammer. Uh, I got real Jack Torrance and the Shining vibes from that. Absolutely. Very I was going to say this so. thing. Yeah. And then obviously moments from like The Exorcist too. Oh yeah, no, oh, I mean that's they literally copy a shot from The Exorcist at the yes, beginning. Yes, I yep. saw. I thought the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh kind of unavoidable here. Uh, overall, from Michael Chaves, it's a, it's a step up from The Curse of La Llorona, which I thought was pretty bad, if you ask me. Didn't even see it. <laughs> it was goofy, very goofy. <laughs> Well, that actually makes me want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Sorry to entice you. But it's still not at the level of the first two uh, Conjuring films. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a mixed bag on this one. There were elements I liked. There were elements I didn't like. I think I'm going to end with a 5 out of 10 uh, for The Conjuring 3. Josh Parham, what about you? I'm also at a 5 out of 10, which has been a very steady decline in the series for me. Uh, the first one was a 7. The second one was a 6. So... Yeah, unfortunately, this is a series of diminishing returns. There's some good elements in it, but overall, I just wasn't really that engaged with the overall narrative. I mean, just for context, uh, first film was an eight for me and the second film was a seven. So this is a de- uh, de- not a steep decline, but, you know, definitely, uh, definitely a pretty harsh drop for sure. Sarah, I'm a six. OK, mm-hmm. Emma. I think currently I'm at a six, but I'm not going to say that I'm going to rewatch this to see if it changes. I will not rewatch this. Cody? I'm at a six also. It's also, Matt, I have the exact same ratings as you do for the first two. And I I was at a five for the entire movie, but then certain spooky things happened at the end of the movie. And for me, if a horror movie has like two or three good scares, sometimes that's really all I need to recommend it because I think that is a talent to be able to you know bring that emotion out of me and the audience in general so yeah i'm at a six okay yeah no i i can understand that completely it's not an easy thing to pull off especially when you have a lot of skeptics and people who are like i don't scare easily and then they you know go into a movie daring it to scare them essentially so uh yeah now i'm with you with that it takes a takes a takes a talent for sure do you guys think if we get a fourth film do you think that that one will be The Conjuring 4, The Money Made Us Do It? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of other cases left, and 
by all accounts, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga enjoy working with each other and they would gladly do it again. So I suspect that we are going to see another Conjuring film at some point. The other cases will also be the most sinister <laughs> moments in their lives, the scariest demon they've come into contact with. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, there are elements in this film sprinkled throughout, like Blink and You'll Miss It, where they are alluding to potentially other cases. There are just other, there's like some more world expansion here. So it's like they're setting it up. And I also read uh, read that there was an interview where uh, the director uh, said that there was supposed to be a post credit scene, but they took it out, though. Oh. Yeah. Eh, you know, make of it what you will. I mean, I'm all for other ones, especially there's this one case that they had that's set in a cemetery. Like, I wonder what how they would, you know, how oh. the film would turn out if they did that. We'll see. All right. Well, we've come to the greatest jump scare of all. Duh! Oscar <laughs> potential for The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Oh. You just made a lot of people lose their hearing, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> like their head, they just took off their headphones like, God damn it. <laughs> uh, there is no Oscar potential. Yeah, no. <laughs> Absolutely no. no. <laughs> See that? It was it was an appropriate jump scare. Yeah. It, it, made you, it made you scared for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Best picture winner. Well, thank you everyone for listening to our review of The Conjuring of the Devil Made Me Do It. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Emma Sasek. You can find me on Twitter at Emma underscore Sasek, and I'm on Letterboxd at Emma Sasek. Sarah Clements. You can find me on Twitter at Mildred Spheres. And Cody Derricks. I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at CodyMonster91, and if you want to hear me talk about other spooky shit, I have my own horror movie podcast called Halloweeners. We're on all platforms. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, drop us a comment, rate us five stars, anything less than that is unacceptable, please feel free to do so. And if you want to hear some more exclusive podcast content from us, you can head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you will get some throwback reviews. Uh, Maybe we will throw The Conjuring in there at some point for our 2013 retrospective. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Either way, thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.